Welcome to the GlobalTQM.com podcast, where we teach e-commerce business owners how to source the best products from China, negotiate with Chinese manufacturers, navigate Chinese business culture, and grow your business to seven figures and beyond. David Hoffman is the founder and CEO of GlobalTQM.com, your team on the ground in China. With over 25 years of experience doing business in China, David and his team at GlobalTQM.com have the know-how and experience to overcome any challenge you'll face sourcing and manufacturing in China. Welcome to the Business of E-Commerce, the show that helps e-commerce retailers start, launch, and grow their e-commerce business. I'm your host, Charles Plesky, and I'm here today with David Hoffman. David is the founder of GlobalTQM. He is an expert in Chinese sourcing, supply chain, private label, and brand licensing. I asked David on the show today to chat about what are some of the hidden risks importing from China. So, hey, David, how are you doing today? Very good. How are you doing? Doing good. Awesome to have you on the show. I love the topic of some of the risks importing from China. Um, I think it's one of those things a lot of people kind of tell folks just to kind of jump into it, but a lot of people don't talk about the other side of like what you can run into. And there are a lot of potential risks. So sure. first, where are you? So I'm in Boston here, and I know we kind of had to get time zones lined up. Where are you located? So, so I'm located in Hong Kong. I've been living out here for about 16 years. Uh, I've got offices in China, so I spend a lot of my time between Hong Kong and China. So we're about a 12-hour time zone apart. Okay. And that was – and where are you originally from? Originally from South Africa. Okay. And you moved and there for this specifically, right, to kind of be closer? Exactly. We were purchasing a whole lot of products from China, and um, I've got this opportunity to move out to Hong Kong which at the time seemed like a, I had nothing to lose and everything to gain. And, you know, my plan was to come out here for one year and 16 years later, just got absorbed by this world and this industry. And here I am. So that was 16 years ago you've been there. And this has been the, what you do, this is your focus. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so we, we do a lot of sourcing and quality control in China. Um, you know, I've started different businesses. Um, and you know, those businesses have all started because I've always had this hub and base in China, you know, being able to source products, deal with manufacturers and really get the right quality product. Um, and that's always been for our own businesses and my own businesses. And, you know, from here, it's just kind of accelerated into, you know, helping more and more people on the ground in China. And as such, I haven't been able to leave. Yeah. I've heard a number of folks that. It, once they start kind of scaling in the sourcing, um, like let's say there's two partners, there'll be like one partner that stays local and then one partner goes out there, you know, X number of times per year and almost like it's their part, their home away from home sort of thing. I feel like it's kind it of uncommon. Sense. Yeah. Is that something you recommend or are there other ways around that or like what are some of the yeah. best practices when you want to start doing this? Uh, I th- yeah, it's, it's a great point. I, I think why that happens and, and, it, and it's almost, I think as you get bigger in a business, it becomes a necessity. Um, I mean, there are different ways to do it, but I think the core of it to me is really it's about, you know, having the relationship with your suppliers and really being able to, you know, oversee what they do and work closely with them. Um, and, and I think, you know, what you'll find why a lot of people end up living out here is just because of that, you know, they need to have that proximity to suppliers, oversee the details, because, you know, this whole business is a lot of attention to detail. And, and, and distance, unfortunately, creates, you know, a barrier for lots of problems to occur. Just by being on the ground, you, you can manage it closely. Um, you, you're closer to opportunities as well. You know, as new opportunities arise, you can react quicker and faster. So 
I, I think it's, it's it's like any business. You know, the closer you are to things, the um, easier they go. And because all the manufacturing is done in China, you know, as you scale up, it does kind of make sense to either be here, have a partner here, or you know, if you if you can find reliable companies to outsource to, um, it's an option. But you know, one one of the things I always say to people, and I work with a lot of companies of different sizes is nothing replaces your work and your input into these things. So so, so no, matter how, no matter what type of resource you're working with in China, you always ultimately have to own that and, you know, take control and really lead the project and lead and project manage, you know, your product development. Yeah, but let's say you're a retailer and you have, you know, a family and kids and they go to school and all sorts of things and you just can't, like, pick up and move there. Is there something in between? Is there some alternative that you kind of see folks successfully doing, or is that yeah. do you really need it like a man on the ground sort of thing? Or no, I think you do need a you do need a man on the ground. You don't you don't necessarily have to be the one on the ground. I think um, um, I mean I don't want to speak specifically about our company, but as an example, you know we offer services on the ground in China. But, you know, our business model is really such that we help you build the relationship with your supplier. Um, and, you know, you know, we don't believe in, you know, kind of having middlemen in the supply chain process. We believe in, you know, just nurturing those relationships. And, you know, I think having somebody that you can send to the factory to check on things or, you know, even just a, um, a Western mindset or a Western voice that you can talk to, communicate with, can check samples quicker and faster for you, you know, it, it is very helpful. And I think if you can create a, a really healthy three-way relationship, where um, you know it, things are very transparent, you know, absolutely, you can outsource a lot of that work, and I think you can, you know, make the process um, such that you can still do your checks and balances, and you know that if that means, you know, more sampling and checking, you're checking more and more samples, and not rushing things, and just taking time to do it remotely, um, it absolutely can work, and you can send people out to the factories to check it. You can inspect your products before they leave the factory. But I think it's about patience and, and not really not rushing things and assuming things are going to be done right. You know, just checking each step along the way. What do you say to folks that, because I know this happens all the time, where they start talking to a factory and the factory says, yeah, we have someone here that kind of does that. We, someone in-house that does that interfacing for you where they'll send you, you know, samples. They're on um, WeChat and they'll send you, um, you know, photos right there over the phone. And you don't, and they say, you know, with our factory, you don't need that. What do you say to folks that do that? Is that viable or is that still not the way to go? No, I, I, I think, um, firstly, I think it's absolutely okay to communicate and interface with the factories through WeChat, let them make proposals and all of that. And I encourage that because that's part of the relationship and also how they conduct themselves is a good kind of litmus test for you to see how they're going to, you know, deal with you. Um, but I, I, I think it's, I mean, I've, I've been burned so many times and I know so many people that have, and it's not necessarily intentional or deliberate, you know, mistakes happen. Um, there's misunderstandings, you know, I, I say without seeing samples, without checking production before it leaves the factory, without getting, um, you know, depending on the product type, getting the, um, the compliance checked independently, that, that's crucial. You can't rely just on your manufacturer to provide that for you. You know, ultimately, ultimately you have to own that responsibility because when there are problems, um, 
you know, you're the one facing your customers, your reputation, it's your online business or, or even just bricks and mortar retail business. So, no, I, I think it's really essential that it's always third-party checks or you're checking it with a trusted party that you know um, and not because you can't trust people, it's because mistakes happen. I think that's really, really critical. Over time, I think as you build a relationship with the manufacturer and you know them well and you've met them a couple of times and you've had a smooth run of shipments and quality, you know, you can ease up and try. It's like any road. I don't think the relationship in China is necessarily different to a relationship anywhere else. It's you build relationships over time and, and you know, trust and confidence is something that's earned over time. And, you know, that's when you kind of, you kind of feel more relaxed and you do less but you still need to do, you know, some basic checks always because even with the best of intentions, mistakes happen. And I just think that's really important. Yeah, there's always this dream of everything being completely like hands off and you're just going to submit an order. It'll land in the U.S. It'll go to some 3PL and orders will start coming in and the magic will happen. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's why when I came to Hong Kong, I thought I'd come for one year and move on. <laughs> 16 years later, for that exact reason. You're, you're still working still- on the dream. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I realized I like, actually need to build a whole infrastructure around all these things. It, it doesn't stop, but you've you got to own it. Yeah. So what are some of the hidden things that people aren't? So these are some of the things that people know, like quality issues, things like that. Um, are, there, are there some more hidden things underneath that you wouldn't necessarily think of um, as a new uh, retailer? I think, I think some of the things that I'm kind of um, facing more and more is um, – I mean, of course, quality, but I think, you know, what happens a lot of the time is it, it, it's the things you don't discuss with the suppliers that sometimes matter the most because I find people will often press on a price um, but without clarifying the specification first. So, you know, they'll press on a price, the supplier might meet the price, and then you realize later that, oh, um, they took a shortcut or they reduced the quality of material or they changed the thickness of materials. It, it's all kind of always the things that you don't think about that are the ones that creep up, you know, to catch you. So, you know, like I, I always kind of say like price isn't the first thing to negotiate. Like do like a whole lot around of sampling first, checking, understanding the specs from multiple factories first. And then when you really know what you want and you've seen the samples, you know, that's the time to negotiate on the price because, you know, you, you could get 10 samples from 10 people and they can be substantially different in, in, in what, what you expect. Um, I think one of the other things I'm finding a lot more is, you know, we're having a lot more conversations with people in terms of protecting their trademarks in China. And that's something I advocate a lot um, because if you register your trademark in China first, you know, they, you know, we've had cases where suppliers have manufactured trademarks that they see doing well overseas um, or just, you know, you know, online sellers in China, you know, you register them themselves. And although like a lot of people say I don't sell in China, what happens a lot of the time is the Chinese sellers will go and sell it online on Chinese marketplaces or on China, Amazon China, and it's lawful because they own the trademark for that market. So, you know, I've been telling people a lot more and more to register your trademarks in China just to protect your manufacturing base, irrespective of whether you're selling there. And then, you know, just, just watching out for those things you don't know and having patience, you know, finding people try, you know, end relationships too quickly because of, lack of patience and I think um, often it's just that communication and time that it takes to nurture things and you know don't expect the perfect sample on the first round 
people always say, oh, the first plant should be perfect, but it's really the case because, you know, I just find manufacturers actually are better at mass production than they are at making handmade samples. And a lot of the time, if it's very custom, they're making handmade samples that aren't perfect. So I think, you know, understanding those kind of nuances and adapting with that patience, um, you know, some of the hidden things to, to kind of look out for and just think about. Yeah, I like the, that concept of registering in China. So even if you're not selling in China, you'd recommend registering a trademark there. Um, Absolutely, without a doubt. That's, that's, a, uh, that's one of those little tips. Is there a large cost to doing that, or is that something similar to the U.S., or what's kind of the process it, like? It's a couple of – I mean, there's lots of companies that do it. We even do it for people if they want us to help them with that. Um, it's a, a couple of hundred dollars, I think two, three hundred dollars, depending on how many classes. Um, but it's one of those things where – I've had online sellers where the factories register the trademark and sell it in China. And you know, it's quite disturbing because you can't really do anything about it. Um, and I, I just say it's like when you register a business, you take out insurance, there's certain things you do. I just always say register your trademark in China because, you know, like there's a misconception that intellectual property is not manageable in China. It actually is. If you've got the Chinese intellectual property, you know, it's, the conflict really comes in when people have got the overseas RP and they're trying to enforce it in China. It becomes a much more costly, long exercise. And, you know, I say for two, three hundred dollars, a lawyer is going to charge you five to ten thousand dollars to deal with the issue. So it's like, it, for me, it's, it, it's like negligible. If you've got a good brand that you're building, you're doing well with it, just register it in China. Even if you've got international trademarks, it's just going to shortcut a lot of issues in the long run. And it's becoming more and more of an issue with the marketplaces going global. Yeah, that's a good one. And you don't hear people saying it that often. And it sounds like if you have someone that can help you do it, it's a relatively yeah. cheap and easy process, right? On it, 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 exactly. And I think that, you know, the options are, you know, you do have to check the, there are Chinese um, regulations that determine if your trademark qualifies for registration in China. And you do have to do some of the application in Chinese. Um, but, you know, it, it's not hard. I mean, we do it for people. It takes them within seven days. They've got the application in and, um, <clears throat> you know, then it can take anywhere for a year to get the registration through. But the key is once the application is in, you're already protected because in China, it's the first one to register or to, to apply. So, you know, at least no one else can come in later without being contested. So I'm just a huge advocate, you know, anybody I'm dealing with, I'm saying, please do it. Whether it's with us or someone else, just get it done. It's really important. Mm, okay. That's a, that's a good tip right there. So if you're listening, yeah, uh, that, that sounds like yeah. one of those things you won't, like, you almost just have to do at that point. It's well worth the small investment. And it sounds like not- You have to do it and you've yeah. got to hope you never even need to use it. But yeah. it's it's just, if you do have to use it, it's like, it, would be, it would have been a no-brainer. And I think the way the world's changing now, like people always say to me, oh, what's the best way to protect my IP in China and stock factories from copying my products? And I go, you know what, that's a lot harder than registering your trademark. And your trademark's like your brand, you know, it's your reputation, it's it's everything you stand for, it's your customer service. So like, would you protect your personal name, right? It's your integrity. So I say like the best way to protect yourself from Chinese manufacturers or copying is protect your trademark and brand name first, because, you know, people, products have cycles that come and go and, you know, the next bad comes and, you know, that's a lot, a much harder battle to fight. But, you know, a reputation is something that, you know, nobody can copy easily and, and, and that's your brand. So I say it's, it's the single biggest way to, to simplify things.
Gotcha. Yeah, good tip there. So yeah, kind of changing gears a little. You mentioned about the sampling um, process. I feel like there's some confusion around that where um, I hear a lot of times someone new kind of doing this. Someone's the factory's asking them for cash up front before the sample, for the sample, during the pro like this down payment, like all these different things. What is what's like the right path? Like what's the best practices? How should this work? And what should someone expect going into this? So. I, they, I don't think there's a golden rule from every single supplier that they should follow. I think it comes down to anything. If you can imagine, if you put yourself in, like a lot of people, I said, put yourself in the supplier's shoes. They've probably got hundreds, if not thousands of people approaching them all day, every day um, for samples. You know, so when a supplier kind of asks me to pay for a sample, I actually always say no problem because that's how they're going to give me the attention. You know, it shows that I'm serious, right? I'm putting skin in the game. If the guys are asking for samples for free and don't want to pay or want to pay later, you know, what would you do if you had 100 or 200 or 300 people asking you for things? You go to the guy who's serious and says, well, I'm willing to pay for the sample. I think, um, you know, over time when you're dealing with them more and more, they start giving you samples for free because you're a customer, you're already buying. So I think, you know, upfront, you've got to give a little bit, a little bit of give and take, pay for the sample, get it. Um, you know, I think it's reasonable that if the sample's no good or it's broken or damaged that they replace it or substitute it. Um, but, you know, I generally say the one thing you don't want to shortcut is sampling. Um, I, I don't think you can touch a product without sampling it multiple times. I think if you get a bad sample, it's par for the course. Um, it's, it's kind of an investment in what on – I think the cost of a sample is far less – than um, the pain of ordering the wrong product and not checking it out properly. And I just I just see that I see sampling as, as like an investment in an investment in product development and R and D and just you know quality control. You just have to do it. Um, a lot of manufacturers, by the way, will um, say if you place an order, we'll refund you the sample cost. And they will, but I think just mentally, you know, I just see sampling as a necessary evil. Well, I shouldn't say evil, a necessary requirement. Um, and it's, it's a cost of doing business, and it's a much cheaper cost of doing business. What is helpful um, is that we get all our samples sent to our China office, and our clients also use our China office because that saves a lot of time and courier costs. So like we say to people, you know, get your samples sent to our office, our team go through it and check them and do like a Skype call with you, hold them up and discuss them because, you know, it takes a factory one or two days to send them to a local China office and, you know, and they'll often cover the freight cost, you know, because it's quite cheap. So very often the factory will, will, will cover that cost and you pay for the sample and then you don't have to worry about couriering it overseas. You know, and then you kind of get people like us to go through it with you, check them. And, you know, once you've kind of done that filtering, you say, okay, if that one's good and that one's good, send it. If those aren't good, just send them back to the factory and try to get a refund, you know, or um, in some cases, a factory, like if you've got a local office to send the samples to, uh, some cases, a factory will, you get, in some cases, you'll get away at the factory giving you the sample because you can always say, well, if you send it to my China office, um, if it's no good, I'm going to send it back. If it's good, you know, I'll pay for it within a couple of days. And, you know, it's like a 50-50 chance. Some will accept it, some won't accept it. So, you know, I find that like whole sampling process we do for our customers is like, it's like incredibly helpful and it saves so much time. 
because you know you get samples they're not good if you ship them overseas you know that can take a couple of days if not weeks and then you know that it's no good you start the process again and you've incurred that cost so i like to check samples in china on round one round two and then when you've narrowed it down you know you get the right one sent through to you i think it's i think it speeds up the whole cycle time and i think uh, overall it pays for itself because you've saved all that career and all that time you've saved so that's generally how I approach that. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the biggest things with the sample time, with the sample yeah. process, where folks are, when they're getting into it, they kind of just want it to happen and don't realize the amount of back and forth and time it's going to take is a lot longer it, than I think a lot of people's expectations. It's long. And then it's important. It's the details, right? Like I always say to people, like, don't expect a perfect sample because – that's what you're doing, right? You're building a brand. You're that buffer between what the end consumer sees and all the hard work that goes on in the manufacturing process, right? You want to see every detail. You want to see the finish, the quality, the texture, the feel, the performance. You need to see that. You know, that, you know that, that is what your job is. And, 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 you know, to expect it to be perfect is it's, it's not realistic, rather embrace the process and go, well, I'm glad I found all these problems because I didn't produce it like that. That's, that's one of the points right there, that kind of little thing you said to point out, that's what your job is. I think a lot of people think that's, that's the factory's job or that's someone else's job, and they don't realize that your, your value as the retailer, part of it is that, qual is that quality control. So the factory, that's where the line ends is the factory produces the product, but quality control is the retailer's job. And I think that's exactly. kind of gets blurry. And who does a who does a customer, the consumer, come back to? The retailer. They come back to you. You're going to face them. You're going to refund them. You're going to credit them. They, they they're not going to say who did you buy it from and how did this happen. <laughs> yeah. No, no, yeah, no one asks. No one asks that as a consumer when you get a no bad ever cares. a bad review on Amazon. They they don't ask that exactly. Yeah. exactly. And the factories never say, "Well, you credit your customer, we'll credit you." Don't worry. It's very rare. <laughs> yes. So. I, I think the sample process, that, that is the biggest thing. People just kind of rush through that and like just want yeah. they They think somehow uh, it's not quite right. Like maybe they get the first sample, but it's not quite right. And they kind of just say okay because they want it to be done. But don't realize there's going to be some back and forth. Like how many times, what, what is kind of a, a short sample process versus a longer one? Like are there, are there ever times where somebody gets one, they're perfect, let's go, let's do it? Or should you expect well, four or five back and forth? It's such a good question. I, I think if you go, if you've gone back four or five times, it's perfectly normal and acceptable. Sometimes it's more. You know, sometimes we even break it down. You know, it could be generally okay. We might say, "Oh, I'm looking at your headphone. Maybe the cable on the cables are on color." You go, you know what? Just send me the cable. I want to see the cables. So you, you know, you, then you say, "Okay, just send me that part. Send me that piece," and then. You say, okay, fine, I'm happy with all these parts I've seen. Now, you know, you build that into a spec and then say to the factory, please confirm you're going to produce with these parts and we're going to inspect it that the mass production, you know, has got all, all these different parts we've approved and signed off and are happy with. You know, that's what we want to see in mass production. And that's why you have to have somebody there checking that mass production for you who understands the process and has been through it with you because – you know, those details are hard to pick up unless you've been through that journey. And who understands what you're looking for, very specifically. Exactly. Because, you know, let's say it's a clothing product, the feel of the fabric, like the texture, that sort of thing. There's some very subtle differences there that you can't get unless you're physically, you know, holding it in your hand, touching it. 
seeing the way it looks in the light, like there's all these little kind of nuances that unless you have someone on the ground that realizes, hey, I want exactly. to, yeah, right. Like I want it to look a certain way in the light versus not, not in the light. I want it to feel smooth, not rough or whatever that is. A hundred percent. And then even that's like a process. It's like working with the team, right? It's like, you know, at the beginning, you've got to handhold and nurture that team so much more until it gets to a point where you go, remember how, you know, you've shown them, feel this fabric, feel this fabric. That's a texture I always want. And then they know and they can visit half a dozen factories for you going forward and say, that's good, that's not good. And they've got like a benchmark or, you know, frame of reference that they can compare to. You know, and slowly, slowly you're building your, your team of people that understand what you like and what you need and what you want. Yeah, I like that. What yeah. Are, what are the kind of, what are the gutches you see new re- retailers running into that they, you know, start this process and they completely don't see, and I know like the sampling is one of the big ones, but are there any other ones that retailers, they're not even, they don't even know what they don't know sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, look, there's, there, there's a list, um, um, delivery dates. I think like they just demand a delivery date and they don't, you know, packaging, packaging, I think, is a huge one. Packaging and labeling, I think the attention to detail, and that's so critical. And, you know, I see guys take so much time on it, but then they demand a delivery. They, they forget that there's a production schedule, you know. So, like, you know, I, I always say, like, as far as I'm concerned, until you've actually signed up all your artwork and packaging, don't even expect a delivery date because it's just common sense. The supplier can't order those materials, right? So if they can't order those materials, how are they going to finish production? So like I always, you know, I always have hear people say, oh, well, I've signed it off now. Can you quickly rush production and get it done next week? It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, well, he's got to order those materials, get them in, then start production. You know, so I think that people misunderstand the timelines um, and, and underestimate, overestimate what a factory can pull off um, in a short space of time without without making a mistake or compromising some quality somewhere. And it's not just quality in the product, it's quality, it could be quality in the workmanship, you know, time stresses uh, make people make mistakes, order wrong materials, put the wrong artwork through. I mean, we've had it loads of times where we inspect the goods and we go, but you're using a packaging that the, the, the version one, not version two, you know, and they go, oh, we made a mistake, we we're under pressure, we sent the wrong one to the printer. So there's a lot of other quality issues that come out of time stresses. So I think, you know, really planning those things and, and, and doing them properly makes a massive difference. Yeah, I like that idea of understanding that that delivery date, you, so you can't even get that date until the contract's signed. Like, they're not, don't even expect the factory to try, like, don't even press them on the date because, yeah, right, they still, they just don't know. Estimate a date, right? It's like, in, if, if everything runs according to clockwork, you know, that's going to be your production date. And people just use that kind of as their Bible, right? That's their, their, their yardstick, which, which is important, especially running promotions. But if it's a first-time factory and everything's new, you haven't checked a sample before or you haven't um, done compliance checks on the product before, you haven't done packaging and artwork and anything like that, it's just not realistic. You have to budget that time in. If it's a repeat order, I think it's a lot different. You know, then you can say, okay, look, you know, it's the exact same repeat order production run. Nothing's changing or there's some minor changes. Um, but, yeah, and, and I think you've got to budget that extra. And everybody says, don't worry, I'll get the artwork done in five days. It's never five days. 
Because it's, you know, it's human nature. You see packaging, you see the design, and then you go, oh, this is better, that's better, change this, change that. And and that's fine. You know, you want it to be right, but you understand it pushes out the production schedules. Yeah, I think what people don't realize is they see an estimated date, and they think that's from, like, today. But what really happens is that's from when the factory gets everything they need. And then it's still only an estimate at that point. But so it, don't even, exactly. like, yeah, like, you don't want to base everything on that. It's just an estimate it might be the first time they're producing with this material or in this method. So they, 100%. right. So, and you don't want to be pushing them that hot on that date because they might hit the exactly. date, but make the product, you know. It, yeah. it, exactly. And I think it's okay to keep them under pressure, but like, don't, you know, I'll say you can't fool yourself, right? It's okay to keep them under pressure, but you have to understand that, I'm not probably. I'm probably not going to get this in 45 days. It's probably going to be 60 days. It's going to ship. And as long as you got your own internal time frame, you know, it's okay. You know, keep pressure on the 40 days, the 30 days, whatever's been committed. And when things go wrong, you know, apply a bit of pressure. That doesn't hurt any targets and milestones. Never hurt anybody, right? In getting things done, especially the factories. But I think don't don't trick yourself into believing it. You must have your own internal time frame, and then you just, you know, you push production as fast as you can, realistically. Yeah, you're gonna have to add buffers, right? Because even if it's not the factory, there could, there could be shipping issues. There could be issues with customs that, who knows? It just go like you hear all the time, price just getting held up in customs, and they're in some customs black hole for indeterminate. And you can't, you can't even get a date from customs. We'll never get exactly. It. They do what they want and when some they want. People don't understand that, but it's true. You can't. They, they just get stuck in limbo. So just add buffers, basically. Yeah, you're right. And I think also people don't realize, you know, the factory wants to ship the goods. And, you know, it's in their interest to produce the goods and ship the goods and get them out. They don't want to give you a hard time. You know, so when these things do happen, I think you do need to, uh, you know, understand them and work with the suppliers to, to, to work through them. It actually builds a healthier relationship. Yep. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. So yeah. last question, although it's a big one, but... And kind of in the interest of time, I want to make sure we get this in. Is when do you start negotiate? When and how do you negotiate on pricing with the factory? Because, like you were saying earlier, I see people do that way too soon in the process. On way too soon. Yeah, they're basically asking for a sample and a price day one. And like, exactly. The factory doesn't even know what they give you a price on at that point. And you haven't even seen a sample. How can you say that's too expensive, right? Yes. Yeah. You see, I always negotiate from uh, information is king. That's how I look at it, right? Information and knowledge is king. So, you know, I say you use the factories to educate yourself on the materials. You, you speak into a couple of factories, right? So if you're getting different prices, it's okay to say to a factory, why would somebody else quote me a lower price than this? It looks the same. They will, they'll be the first ones to tell you, oh, but is it this material? Is it the spec? Is it this thickness? Is it, you know, this finish, right? And, and that will help you educate. That gives you the knowledge you need, right? Give you the ammunition you need down the line. So, you know, I just kind of record and collect the information like it. And then I think I start negotiating. Once I've got a whole bunch of samples and I've seen what I'm getting for the prices quoted and I know what's going to work for me more or less, you know, and I say what works for me in terms of what I'm going to land it at, what can I sell it at? And, you know, uh, you know, I don't want to be stupid about a price and go to them and ask them for something I know is not achievable, and kill the deal. So once I've got that knowledge, I'll always negotiate from a position of strength and knowledge. You know, I want to go in and say, guys, you know, I've checked five products that are 100% identical. The specs are the same. 
you know, I need a dollar off this or two dollars off this, right? Um, that's when it's the time to negotiate because you've got to be able to back up what you're saying because the guys that know what they're doing will see straight through you. They'll go, no, you don't, there's no way you've got the same product as me, you know, at that price. So you've got to know those details, then you can negotiate, you know, and then, you know, and you can also then find ways to cut down the price. Like, guys, what can you do to lower the price, right? We need to be at this price point. What's not going to compromise the quality? You know, rather agree on different packaging or different, uh, if a different material where they say, look, it's a different material, but we think the performance is the same and you can make the educated choice. So I think understanding the materials, the costs of those materials and having different products to benchmark, then you start to negotiate. Yeah, I like that about, you're almost working with the factory to try to get to a target cost in some of these, right? Exactly. Where it's not just, give me the cheapest price. It's not just like, you're beating them up for the cheapest price. You're more saying, you know, we're trying to get to, you know, 20, 23.36 for this unit. And right now they're coming in a bit higher. How do we, how can we get there? Um, yeah, because I've heard people do that with packaging and things like that, where maybe instead of having the factory package it, you can actually just have them come, it's like, have them come in bulk to the US and then break them apart here or different things. 100%. And, and I must tell you, a lot of people don't realize what a big cost difference a packaging makes. You know, I, I know firsthand we deal directly with a lot of printers in China. And I know if I do a production run of a thousand or 5,000 boxes on a product, my price is so significantly higher than we do a production run on 50,000 units. Even I was surprised. I was like blown away. I said, wow, how can it be that much of a difference? And it really is. So, you know, quantity makes a huge difference. So, you know, if it's smaller quantities, rather than make compromises on packaging where, you know, you can lower the cost. If that's, if it's important, it depends on the product and how important the packaging is. You now, if it's e-commerce, packaging sometimes less important as long as it passes drop tests. But visually, you know, the product's purchased in theory before it arrives at the door. But, you know, it, it's a balancing act. But I do think... Packaging is one area that costs can really be saved a lot, you know, and then just also understanding specs and materials and products. Yeah, I've heard people that kind of skip on the packaging and then have this like 50% damage rate and UPS yes. is pushing back, but they're saying, you know, yeah. these weren't packaged yeah. correctly. So then you're, no. you're fighting with... Drop tests and vibration tests on everything before they go. Oh, yeah? You so want how, how do you do that yeah. exactly? Yeah, so, so, so firstly, when we're dealing with our supplies, we... We give them our specification. We tell them, I think we use one STA. I stand for correction. I'll give you the right details for notes later. But I think we use one STA, which is like an international drop, drop shipping test standard. So um, they'll make the packaging according to that. And then we actually send our people into the factory, our inspectors, to they do drop tests at production and inspection. They'll take X number of units. We'll do drop tests on them. They drop them five sides from one meter high on six corners. And then you open it up, the product shouldn't be damaged, the box should have minimal damage. So there's a standard, there's actually a quality control standard for drop tests, and, and we do it on every single product. But we tell the factory up front before we place the order, because it's not fair to you know place an order in the factory, then go impose that inspection standard, and they go, but you never even asked us for that, because it, there is a cost difference. But I think I'm sure you've experienced that. There's no cost worse in reworking product and having damaged goods in the warehouse after that ship. You know that that's the worst case scenario. And it's the damaged goods, and then you have to send a second one with a, and then you have to go to UPS and try to negotiate your insurance claim. And that's a, and maybe you get it, maybe you don't. There's a whole. It just opens up this 
long exactly. things that happened. And suddenly that 20 cents extra for the packaging didn't seem like such a big deal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So do factories know, like when people, to people that have had this happen, right? Does the factory know what's going to work for the Dropcast and what won't? And it's just something that the retailer just didn't ask them or didn't kind of specify? Or was the factory it, trying to skimp on it? Like what usually happens with this kind of breakdown? It, yeah, it's such, it, yeah. Uh, I, I find there's a mixture of factories. Some factories will know straight away and they go, oh, okay, if you want that, you know, we have to use better packaging. And then some just know straight away, which I like because it's reassuring. At least they know. Some just go, oh, okay, well, we'll try and we'll check and we'll test and they don't know. And I think, you know, trying to suck the truthful answer out of them is the important part. But, you know, I think as long as they agree to it when you're placing the order before you're paying your deposit or opening your letter of credit, I think as long as you agree on that in your spec, you know, I always say you front load everything. I front load all my quality control checks. I front load all my specs and requirements, all the checks we're going to do on it, all the compliance documents. I front load it all because I would much rather they tell me at that point, oh, look, we can't do this or we can't do that or we don't know how to do this. Because if they don't know how to do it, I can often help them get it done. And I okay, well, look, guys, we'll help you do it. But, you know, maybe it's going to cost some money. And we discuss that. But just front-loading things and knowing up front is the key to everything for me. Awesome. Well, that's super helpful. I, uh, I hope so. Yeah. No, thank you for that. If folks want to learn more about you, kind of ask you some questions, kind of contact, contact you about the company, where's the best way to do that? So, so we've got a website called globaltqm.com. Uh, it's one word globaltqm.com and then um, I mean on there there's actually a button where you can just schedule a free call and um, if they if anybody wants to just schedule a free call and just they can mention your show in the notes when they book the call and then I'll take all those calls personally Um, you know I love talking to the customers and then we can talk them through just free advice is fine and seeing where and how we can help them we're more than happy to as well if you're offering free advice, I definitely urge people to take that because it sounds like this is one of those things where just having this knowledge of what not, just what not to do even is so, super important. So people should definitely take you up on that. Uh, I agree. It's what you, it's, it's what you don't know that bites you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on today. Definitely, uh, definitely appreciate that. Oh, wonderful. And thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the GlobalTQM.com podcast. So you don't miss a single episode, remember to subscribe to our show on iTunes. We'd also be very grateful if you'd leave us an honest rating and review. And don't forget to download your free gift, our ebook on China sourcing for startups at GlobalTQM.com slash gift. Mm-hmm.